This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy, it's time for another Eponymous Foods episode. I'm so excited. These have become a favorite of mine. I love these because I get to talk about food, which I love, but also there are often surprises, and this one is no different. Yep. Um, This episode only has two foods in it. Those two foods could not be more different. One is a flaming dessert, and one is a meat patty. Um, Also, we want to make sure we say at the top, one of these foods was part of a fad diet. Neither of us is really a fan of telling anybody what to eat. Uh, But I will point out that it's a good idea to eat a balanced diet of a lot of different food groups, unless you're instructed otherwise by your personal physician. I don't want anyone to think we're endorsing the strict diet that will come up in the second story that we're telling today. Um, Eat eat what you think is best for you. You know your body and I don't, but this one seems very extreme to me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, folks may also be surprised to learn that it was like a a, a weird diet food originally because yes. I sure didn't when I first. It's not it. something I associate with health foods at all, and I don't think most people would. Yeah, but we're gonna start with the sweeter story. But the sweets refer to the food. There are some slightly darker aspects of this story. So here we go. Yeah. So th- beyond everything Holly just said. This first food we're talking about is a little bit tricky because it's difficult to find information on the person the dish is named for, even though he's mentioned a lot, and this is relatively recent history. So we're going to unravel as much of it as we can. There's still a little bit of a gap. And really, the story veers off in some other directions anyway. What we are talking about is Bananas Foster. So if you have been to New Orleans, you know that Brennan's is a New Orleans dining icon at this point. Uh, That restaurant went through some financial and legal issues in the 20-teens. That family has kind of splintered apart over the years and had some disagreements, but there are 10 restaurants owned and operated by members of the Brennan family in New Orleans today. And it all started on Bourbon Street in 1946, although the main Brennan's location relocated to Royal Street quite a while back. 
And while you might think of New Orleans and associate it with French or Cajun or Creole food traditions, all of which you can absolutely sample at Brennan's, Owen Edward Brennan, who first opened the restaurant, was actually an Irish-American, although he was born in New Orleans. Owen had enlisted his younger sister Ella's help in some earlier restaurant ventures, and when he bought out a restaurant called the Vieux Carré and turned it into Brennan's Vieux Carré, he had her on staff in the French Quarter restaurant as a manager, and this was not always easy. Ella had helped her brother out in other businesses, but management was a lot more serious level of involvement. She really didn't have any experience. She was only 21 when she started there. According to Ella Brennan's memoir, quote, Owen fired me at least three times that I recall, but mom always made him hire me back. It was like a bad comedy. And in her memoir, Ella describes the moment, her version of how the banana's foster dessert was invented. She wrote that Owen came to her in the kitchen one morning and said, Hey, kid, we're having a dinner honoring our friend Richard. He's just been appointed the chairman of the new vice commission, and I would like to honor him with a newly created dessert named for him, and I need it for tonight. And though Ella told her brother that she was in the middle of ordering liquor and revamping the breakfast menu and she did not have time to invent a new dish, he just kept repeating the ask until she finally acquiesced by saying, Damn you, Owen. So then she recounts talking to the maitre d', Frank Bertucci, about this whole challenge. She thought about how every other restaurant did cake for everything, which she did not want to do. And then she commented on how they had plenty of bananas, she thought about how her mother made them for her for her breakfast. Earlier on in the memoir, she recounted her favorite childhood morning meal. Quote, my earliest food memory is of her scrambled eggs and sautéed bananas. I just loved them. Nellie stirred the eggs in a little bowl, poured them into a pan sizzling with butter, stirred them again gently, and slid them out while they were still very soft. Perfection. Then she'd put a little brown sugar and cinnamon on bananas sliced lengthwise into quarters, turn them over in hot butter until they were caramelized, imagine what our kitchen smelled like, and serve them with the fluffy eggs. Nellie never could have imagined what her handiwork in our home kitchen would lead to, but let's just say that eggs and bananas have been very good to our family. So Ella told Frank Bertucci about her mom's breakfast bananas, and he also noted that a competitor restaurant, Antoine's, had a flaming baked Alaska that people just loved because of the flambe element that was performed tableside. And Ella thought they could do the same with bananas, using rum and banana liqueur for the fuel, and then adding cinnamon to make it sparkle in the flame in the dim dining room lights. Then they thought about putting this warm banana flaming situation over ice cream. And so by the time the dinner that night had started, they were ready and that new dessert, Bananas Foster, was born. So that's one version of the story. The other is a bit simpler and it contradicts Ella's version. This one goes that Owen, recognizing that New Orleans was basically bursting with imported bananas, wanted to come up with a dessert that would take advantage of all that banana availability. So he asked his chef, Paul Blanger, to come up with something. There are some variations that suggest that Ella and Paul worked together on it. 
And then to add a little more confusion to the mix, the name of the restaurant shifting over time from Vieux Carré to Brennan's Vieux Carré to just Brennan's and some documentation that there were also other name variations and a location move. That's all led to some inconsistency in the reporting. It is safe to say, though, that this was created at Owen Brennan's restaurant in the early 1950s. Yeah, I had seen one account that said, you'll see that it was invented at Brennan's, but really it was invented at Vieux Carré when Owen Brennan owned it. And it's like, it's all the same restaurant with just name (laughs) shifts. Um, Now, there are two things that we have to revisit in this story uh, because they have some complexity. One is that availability of bananas And two, that vice commission and Richard Foster's place on it, because both of those created the scenario that made Bananas Foster happen. First, the bananas. Bananas weren't really a common thing in the U.S. until after the Civil War. North America is not a place where bananas typically grow, although today you can find banana groves in Florida. Hawaii becoming a U.S. state also changed the numbers quite a bit, but even with Hawaii and Florida combined, the U.S. grows less than a single percent of the world's bananas. We have them available all the time in the grocery store, though. Yep. So starting in the 1870s, bananas started arriving in large quantities at U.S. ports, and New Orleans, being a southern port, had a steady flow of bananas. Because of New Orleans' port status, a lot of fruit companies were headquartered in the city and the surrounding areas. And one of those fruit companies, the Standard Fruit Company, was loosely connected to the Brennan family through marriage. Owen and Ella had siblings, and their brother, John, married into a family that had a stake in Standard Fruit Company. And for a while, John started running a produce business in the city. However... Well before the now-famous dessert was created, Standard Fruit Company had a very aggressive competitor, and that was Cuyamel Fruit Company, which became part of United Fruit Company. Cuyamel was owned and operated by a man named Samuel Zamuri, who had immigrated first to Mobile, Alabama from Russia and then moved to New Orleans. Sam had started out by buying the fruit that had been on the dock for too long as workers struggled to keep up with this massive influx of shipments. He would get the fruit, which was too ripe to just sit in a restaurant pantry for long, for next to nothing, and then would turn it around to sell it to the public at a discount. Eventually, he had an entire network of men selling fruit. And then as he saved up money, he started buying land in Honduras for his own banana plantations. And of course, most bananas hitting U.S. ports were coming from countries that we would call banana republics, so places that depend economically on the export of natural resources and are often deeply unstable from a political standpoint, largely because U.S. business interests were using their influence there to ensure that their businesses thrived at the expense of the people and workers who lived there. Honduras was the first nation labeled a banana republic and was the primary banana exporter in the world as of the 1930s. Zamuri, who had ties to the CIA and the U.S. State Department, used his power and wealth to do things like support military coups, install Manuel Bonilla as president of Honduras, and just generally to maximize exploitation of Latin American countries. 
During his reign as the so-called Banana King, Zamuri's Cuyamel Fruit Company was bought out by United Fruit Company, of which he became president eventually. His legacy is also tied to the 1954 Guatemala coup that we covered as a two-parter in 2019. To be clear, the Brennan family doesn't appear to have been directly involved in this political maneuvering and John didn't stay in the produce business because he started working as a food buyer for the restaurant, but bananas always being plentiful in the kitchens of New Orleans restaurant during this time is something that all ties directly back to U.S. business interests actively working in ways that were harmful in other countries that they were doing business in. Standard Fruit Company eventually became part of Dole Foods, and United Fruit Company was a precursor to Chiquita. So coming up, we're going to talk about the other part of New Orleans history that relates to the Bananas Foster dish. But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. 
Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. So the next aspect of this Bananas Foster story is a little bit trickier to get details on, and that is Richard Foster, for whom the dessert is named. New Orleans, like any big city, has crime. And in the early 1950s, a murder in the French Quarter led to an effort to crack down on crime. Robert Dunn, a tourist from Nashville, went out for a day of partying on New Year's Eve leading into 1950. And after midnight, he and his friends continued their revelry, and eventually they ended up at the Latin Quarter Club, one of the many, many bars on Bourbon Street. And when a waiter was unable to resuscitate the intoxicated Dunn, paramedics were called, but Dunn could not be revived and he was pronounced dead at 5.05 a.m. He was initially believed to have had a heart attack that was brought on from heavy drinking, but an autopsy revealed that he had been poisoned with a sedative, chloral hydrate, known as a Mickey Finn, as in slipped him a Mickey. We might very well do an episode about where that name comes from in the future, because it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, So in this case, Dunn was sedated, it was believed, so that he could be mugged, but the dose was too high and it killed him. This death of a tourist catalyzed a whole movement to clean up the French Quarter. This was a point where the area, which was long considered to be unsavory, was seeing the first pushes toward gentrification. Residents wanted city officials to make the neighborhood safe for them, and restaurants and clubs also wanted to make sure that the tourism trade continued, so they were pressuring city officials as well. Of course, this kind of campaign usually comes with problems. Most gentrification efforts in any city push out the very people who made the neighborhood desirable in the first place, and there's almost always a lot of bias and racism and classism involved. This was definitely true for New Orleans in the early 1950s when three committees were formed to investigate vice and corruption. The first of these was the Mayor's Special Citizens Committee for the Vieux Carré, the SCCVC. In this case, Vieux Carré is another name for the French Quarter, and it was not referencing Owen Brennan's restaurants, although Brennan was involved in the committee along with Richard R. Foster and several other business owners from the quarter. Foster was a local businessman and a civic activist who had long been troubled by the rise in crime in the French Quarter. He was unanimously elected chairman of the SCCVC because he had been advocating for some sort of crime commission for several years at that point. It's documented from at least um, 1946, so at least four to five years. He was also a member of the police advisory board representing business owners in the French Quarter. Most of the committee's recommendations involved removing, quote, shady characters from the French Quarter. This meant investigating taxi drivers, sex workers, anybody deemed to be deviant in their eyes. B-girls, which was short for bar girls, meaning young women who were employed at the bars to socialize with men and encourage them to purchase drinks, they were also under suspicion. The B-girls were considered the most likely source of the poison that had killed Robert Dunn. 
Homosexuals were not called out specifically as one of the problems that the committee sought to solve, but Foster and other committee members very clearly held homophobic beliefs and wanted the quarter's gay population to be pushed out as well. In the meeting minutes for the committee from a March 31st, 1950 discussion, Foster noted that gay men were, quote, congregating in greater numbers in the quarter because New Orleans had tolerated them while most other cities had not. There was also a lot of targeting of women in general in the committee's suggestions. At one point in their discussions, one of the members pointed out that women bartenders were likely to poison customers because they didn't make as much as men, so they would be likely to resort to robbery of patrons. There was a lot of bias to go around here. (laughs) Yeah, kind of anybody that wasn't a white male businessman was like, hmm, suspicious. (laughs) Like they fell under that complete umbrella term of being a shady person. Two other committees were formed as the determinations of Foster's group were reported. Those were the Special Citizens Investigative Committee and the Committee on the Problem of Sex Deviates. And the results of all of these committees and their recommendations were pretty mixed. Some of the ordinances drafted by these three committees were used by police commissioners to advance their own careers, and they were often used to justify raids on poor or marginalized areas while crimes attributed to various business owners not really pursued. If you're wondering why these committees were drafting ordinances, it's because most of the men that sat on them had businesses in the quarter, but also had law degrees, so they were, like, ready to write law. Uh, We should also note that one of the three committees formed in all of this, the Special Citizens Investigating Committee, did uncover and expose a lot of police corruption. That ended up in a whole other legal battle that's kind of uh, secondary to this this story. But even in cases where allegedly suspicious people, per their definitions, were pushed out of the quarter, it was always temporary. They, there was always like a, a brief crackdown and then things would kind of go back to the way they were before. So all of this to say, bananas foster is delicious, but the atmosphere that was invented in had plenty of problems, and some of those problems were related to and even caused by the person the dish is named for. As more of a fun side note, so we don't end on that downer, if you're a Disney person and you've ever eaten at Ralph Brennan's Jazz Kitchen in downtown Disney Anaheim, you're eating at a restaurant that's part of the whole Brennan legacy. Ralph Brennan is John Brennan's son and is the current head of the Ralph Brennan restaurant group. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that and and the family uh, in our behind the scenes on Friday. But now it is time for the next eponymous food. And this one has to start with a confession. (laughs) I don't know, Tracy, if you had this same issue, but I 100% thought that Salisbury steak was named for some Duke of Salisbury. I asked my husband. That's exactly the answer he gave as well. And if you had asked me who it was named for in a trivia situation, that would have been the answer you got. I don't know where Brian and I got that notion. Well, I think I might have thought it was named for a place. Maybe not oh, a right. person, but like... The a Salisbury like, Plain, where they eat yeah. kind of personal meatloaf. I was definitely wrong. I was not correct about, about the source of the name at all. And I think no. a lot of folks have some mental picture of where the name comes from that's like not... It's it's not at all what it is. Uh, You probably don't think of Salisbury steak as a health food, but that is exactly how it was conceived. So let's talk about its namesake, Dr. James Henry Salisbury. 
James Salisbury was born on October 13, 1823, in Scott, New York. His parents were Nathan and Lucretia Babcock Salisbury. The family was Welsh. Information about his early life is pretty sparse, but we know he attended the Homer Academy and then the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He got his undergraduate degree in natural science in 1844. Two years after he got his bachelor's degree, Salisbury was hired as an assistant chemist at the New York Geological Society. And he also, in addition to having a full-time job, pursued additional higher education degrees. He went on to Albany Medical College for his MD, and he started studying germs while he was in medical school, and he was very fascinated by them. He later wrote, quote, In 1849, I began the study of germ diseases. Those of plants first occupied my attention. Afterwards, those in animals and in man. And he also got promoted while he was getting his medical degree to the position of principal chemist. We've covered germ theory on various episodes of the podcast before, so you may have correctly thought that the late 1840s was a pretty early time to be studying germs. Salisbury was kind of a loner among his peers. His fascination with the idea that germs were the cause of disease is said to have gained him a fair amount of criticism from other people. Yeah, it was kind of like, why aren't you just treating your patients? Why do you want to look through a microscope? In 1852, Salisbury left his job at the Geological Society so that he could move to Schenectady, New York, and attend Union College for a master's degree. He supported himself during this time by teaching chemistry at the New York Normal School that was located about 20 miles away in Albany. Once he had finished his master's program, he started a private practice, and he worked on his own research projects. Dr. Salisbury was ahead of his time in a number of ways and was studying diphtheria well before most others in his field. Diphtheria had only been named by French physician Pierre Bretonneau about 25 years before. It would be several more decades before the bacterium that causes diphtheria would be identified and named. So Salisbury was doing research with his microscope into it in the very early stages of understanding this infection. He also studied other medical subjects through the microscope, including measles, and he researched alimentation, meaning how people gained nourishment. And Salisbury started to really focus on the relation between nutrition and disease or health. He had been, from the beginning of his private practice, frustrated at the state of medicine and its lack of understanding regarding the cause and effect of disease. He wrote, quote, I was immediately and forcibly struck by the almost entire want of medical knowledge in regard to the true causes of disease and by the consequent uncertainty that must and did exist as to the means of combating and curing pathological states. This uncertainty hampered me at each step of my practice. The art of therapeutics was a chaos whose sole order consisted in dealing with established pathological conditions as though they were the disease itself rather than what they actually were, viz. consequences based upon antecedent and obscure states arriving from an unknown cause. The grim list of so-called incurable diseases and their steadily increasing death rates riveted my attention and fascinated my thought. 
I attained an entire conviction that they must be curable, that since abnormal conditions could be established in previously healthy organisms, their causation must be discoverable, and that the mind of man must be endowed with sufficient power to trace the interlinked sequence of diseases back to their primary source. I determined to accomplish this discovery, if possible, before my exit from this world. We'll dive into the ways that James Salisbury experimented with his ideas regarding food and health after we hear from some of the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. According to his own account, starting in 1854, Salisbury started experimenting 
with his diet, starting with, quote, living exclusively upon one food at a time. I'm going to confess this brings out like my inner seven-year-old of giggles because he started with baked beans. And this went exactly as well as you might expect. (laughs) Within three days, he wrote that he experienced flatulence, constipation, dizziness, ringing ears, prickly limbs, and mental fog. He examined a sample of his stool under the microscope and discovered that, quote, the bean food did not digest. He then noted that the beans fermented and filled the digestive tract with yeast, carbon dioxide, alcohol, and acetic acid. He continued these experiments with his own diet until September 1856. Then he expanded his research and got six men to come to live with him while they, too, ate only baked beans, and he recorded the results. Does not sound like it would have been a pleasant place to be during this experiment. (laughs) Seven men all eating nothing but baked beans. (laughs) Then he had another test group of four after that who ate nothing but porridge for 30 days, and then he tested various limited diets using 2,000 hogs. Unlike humans, though, he took the hog experiments to extremes, seeing what level of malnourishment and subsequent diseases would result in their deaths. Somehow, even though he was eating experimental diets that often gave him terrible gas, Salisbury managed to get married to a woman named Clara Brazzi in 1860. She was 25 at the time, and the couple had three children, Alice, Mary, and Trafford. Although Alice did not live to adulthood, she died at the age of five. When the U.S. Civil War began, Salisbury cared for Union soldiers, and he continued his testing. In most cases, he was dealing with soldiers who weren't able to fight because of chronic intestinal issues and diarrhea. So he started to develop a program that seemed to work fairly well for them. He was actually feeding them a very low-fiber and high-protein diet, which does help slow people's digestion. He just didn't quite realize that was the mechanism that was at play. We will talk about his thoughts on an ideal diet in just a moment. So after the Civil War ended, Salisbury moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And there he founded the Charity Hospital Medical College and was a lecturer there on numerous topics. And he continued his research into diet, digestion, and health. And he was doing this work because he really felt that if he could identify a dietary cause for the various diseases he was studying, that he could work out a dietary cure as well. And it took him a long time to feel that he had enough data to publish, almost three decades. And the resulting book, The Relation of Alimentation and Disease, released in 1888, has essentially the same diet for treating most ailments. That is red meat, as in we should be eating a lot of it and in a specific preparation which Salisbury called muscle pulp of beef. Salisbury had come to the conclusion that toxins that the human body produced while trying to digest vegetables were the cause of many, many diseases, ranging from heart disease to mental illness. His basic description of meat as a health food is lengthy, but also very detailed, so we're going to read the whole thing. It goes like this, quote, Eat the muscle pulp of lean beef made into cakes and broiled. This pulp should be as free as possible from connective glue or tissue, fat, and cartilage. The American chopper answers very well for separating the connective tissue, this being driven down in front of the knife to the bottom of the board. 
In chopping, the beef should not be stirred up in the chopper, but the muscle pulp should be scraped off with a spoon at intervals during the chopping. At the end of the chopping, the fibrous tissue of the meat, the portion which makes up fibrous growth, all lies on the bottom board of the chopper. This may be utilized as soup meat for well people. Previous to chopping, the fat, bones, tendons, and fascia should all be cut away and the lean muscle cut up in pieces an inch or two square. Steaks cut through the center of the round are the richest and best for this purpose. Beef should be procured from well-fatted animals that are from four to six years old. The pulp should not be pressed too firmly together before broiling or it will taste livery. Simply press it sufficiently to hold it together. Make the cakes from half an inch to an inch thick. Broil slowly and moderately well over a fire free from blaze and smoke. When cooked, put it on a hot plate and season to taste with butter, pepper, and salt. Use either Worcestershire or Halford sauce, mustard, horseradish, or lemon juice on the meat if desired. Celery may be moderately used as a relish. No other meat should be allowed till the stomach becomes clean, the urine uniformly clear and free, standing at a density of from 1.015 to 1.020. Very detailed. So uh, a quick note there. The American chopper that he refers to is a device that was essentially a hand-cranked meat grinder for home use. There were a few different versions of these, but most could be affixed to a countertop with a clamp that was uh, part of it. It was kind of like a built-in C-clamp. And then you dropped meat into the cup-shaped top of the grinder and turned the crank, and the meat went through this grinder and then came out the side where you would have a receptacle, like a, a bowl waiting to catch it. If you want a visual of what this is, one of the most popular models came out actually a few years after Salisbury's book. It was called The Universal Food Chopper. An image search with that phrase will pop plenty of pictures right up for you. There were variations on the diet depending on the illness being treated, and Salisbury didn't expect people to only live on beef with a celery garnish forever. For consumption, he allowed for bread, but meals should be one part bread to every four to six parts beef. No fruits or vegetables, no beans, no sweets, no vinegar. For diabetes, Salisbury recommended meat only for five to six weeks. Then the patient was allowed one mouthful of bread at each meal, slowly increasing over time, if and only if their urine stayed at a specific density. For patients with uterine fibroids or ovarian tumors, all meat until the tumors shrank away, and then some bread and other meats, then slowly other foods, He estimated the process to, quote, remove fibrous diseases thoroughly would take one to three years of this diet. Treating other ailments involved a very similar degree of limited diet. And when Salisbury's book came out, it was very popular. So many people started trying his meat pulp diet that it is often called the first diet craze. So if you think diets like ultra-low-carb eating are new, not even close. Even before the relation of alimentation and diseases was published, the doctor's, quote, meat pulp was known among other physicians, and it was already being called Salisbury Steak. An article that was syndicated across the U.S. in March of 1885 read, quote, Salisbury Steak appears to be giving remarkably good results as a diet for people troubled with weak or disordered digestion, but who require the supporting power of animal food. 
The write-up goes on to describe the preparation method, but it doesn't mention James Salisbury. Instead, it references Dr. Hepburn of Philadelphia, who described to a reporter how to prepare it. An article in the New York Medical Times the following year, which was still two years before Salisbury's book, states, quote, a little salt and pepper and a small amount of butter added make a not-at-all-unpalatable dish and one which contains all the strength of the beef with the tough, indigestible portion entirely separated. This diet is used exclusively in chronic cases by physicians professing to treat, according to the Salisbury Method, they use but few drugs, and what they use are mainly tonics. So Salisbury had fans in the medical community before the public at large had access to this complete method that he described in the book. The Salisbury diet gained even wider recognition when a woman named Elma Stewart wrote of its many virtues in her book, What Must I Do to Get Well and How Can I Keep So? She wrote that 10 years after the relation of alimentation and disease, and she claimed that Salisbury's diet of minced beef patties and hot water had cured her of disease, and her endorsement had made the diet even more popular for a while, until it kind of fizzled out as a fad as people realized that it was not enjoyable or often feasible to eat one thing forever. Throughout his professional life, Salisbury was actively engaged with his colleagues in the medical community, in addition to teaching, he was president of the Institute of Microbiology and was a member of many scientific societies. After the publication of his book, he lived for another 17 years and died on September 23, 1905, at the age of 82. His wife, Clara, died six weeks later on November 2nd. Eponymous Foods. Now we know it's not a Duke of Salisbury. So uh, sometimes we get uh, we get emails from folks who say, I am trying to find your episode on X and I cannot find it anywhere. And uh, we have no episode on X. The person has confused us with another podcast they also listen to. Mm -hmm. So when I was reading this outline, I was like, maintenance phase just talked about this guy. In fact, the podcast Sawbones, a totally different show with a totally different pair of hosts and approach, talked about this not recently, but in something like 2017. <laughs> um, I had no so, idea. Yeah. Uh, and that that was when I learned um, that there, there this was not a dish unique to a place called Salisbury. Um, <laughs> do you have some listener mail before we close out today? I do. This is from our listener, Christine, who wrote us about Ouija boards and dowsing. Uh, Christine writes, I've listened to y'all for years and sent you a couple of animal photos during quarantine since I finally had some extra time to do all the things I'd been meaning to do. After listening to your Ouija boards episode, I actually have some possibly intelligent related comments and questions. In your research on Ouija history and divining boards in general, did you happen to find many mentions or crossover with the practice of dowsing, finding underground water with sticks traditionally? I moved from L.A. to rural Vermont right before the pandemic started and somehow ended up working at the American Society of Dowsers Headquarters, which has been in Danville, Vermont, since 1961. Although I had heard of dowsing mentioned in historical homesteading context, I had no idea it was something that was still practiced enough to warrant an entire society. 
In the two years I've been working here, I have learned a lot about the practice and culture of dowsing, although I still have a lot of skepticism. I am a very fact-based person, so how I ended up here listening to a woman tell me about how her ex-husband is projecting his mind into the body of a fly to spy on her at night, I have no idea. But what I have learned about it seems to me to be very closely related to the concept behind the act of using a Ouija board. In the traditional sense, dowsing for water is based on the concept that humans can sense water with their subconscious mind, and micro-movements in the hand cause the sticks to move when you're over that water source. It seems an awful lot like the unconscious micro-movements that cause a divining board planchette to move. Yet, dowsers seem to really be disdainful towards such a comparison. And while tarot, reiki, pendulum, and board divining and even scrying are also coming back into fashion, dowsing is almost never included as a divining method. Maybe it's because dowsing is more closely associated with old farmers and suspenders than sexy witches. Anyway, all of that is to ask, have you found references to dowsers in your research travels? While this big old farmhouse is a treasure trove of the history of colonizer dowsing in the region, the history beyond that seems to be obscure. The president of the society actually asked me the other day why it's called dowsing, and the best I can find is that it's also a nautical term for towing something on a line, but it's more likely to be a corruption of a foreign word. However, I still can't find anything about it. We do have some reprints here of translated books printed in the 1700s in Europe about the practice, but it's not well recorded and is mostly apocryphal. Anywho, just thought I'd ask because I'm not really finding answers, and currently I am the only employee in this big spooky farmhouse, and all the members of the board of trustees are out of state. For a pet tax, here are photos of some of my current herd of seven cats, one dog, five guinea pigs, three tarantulas, and one grass spider I brought inside who was apparently expecting because she made an egg sack and now I have 20 to 30 baby grass spiders running around. Cats are Cowboy and Little Charlie Onions, Dog is Rico, Pigs are Lenny and Carl, and the tarantula is Professor Puppy Breath. Thank you for taking the time to read my dissertation, and I hope you and yours have a wonderful holiday season. Please let me know if you would like some dowsing rod recommendations. Um, Okay, these uh, pet pictures. The dog is amazing. The guinea pig is amazing. The cats are adorable. And I think I might be the only person, but I love tarantulas, and I think they're very cute. So I really appreciated that as a pet picture because no one sends those. Um, Thank you for taking in your spider and giving a home to her babies. Um, Here's the thing with dowsing. I I didn't run up against it a lot in part because I was not looking for it, right? Like when we're doing research on anything that is related to many other things, sometimes you come up next to a thing and you kind of have to be like, that is not my lane and put on a blinder to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So if dowsing came up, I probably wasn't cognizantly engaging with it. I do think you're onto something that people, it's not even that... um, people associate it with farmers instead of witches. But I do think you're onto something that people associate it more with like one of those skills that like a person who works in agriculture needs it could develop that is less about paranormalism and more about knowing the environment really well. That's my guess. Mm. But I don't know. All I hear is Tom Waits in my head going, a dowser's wand. And that's all I get. Just think about Tom Waits. Um, I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Uh, but yeah, it's very interesting. I haven't really researched it. I, I don't know if it would ever pop up, but uh, I think you might be the person to do that research because you have probably access to things we would never even be able to hmm. find, uh, which is pretty cool. And I love that there is a place that is devoted to it still. Um, 
yeah, I will say in my head, I think of it as something, it has been characterized as kind of paranormal, but I really do think of it as like a little more scientific, which is maybe incorrect, but you know, the way that like uh, a farmer's almanac can predict the weather very, very well. Mm-hmm. I think of it in that same kind of thing, right? Like it's just, it's it's experiential knowledge that gets passed down and some people naturally intuit it better than others. But again, just guessing, just guessing. Um, if you would like to write to us, you could do so. We're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media at Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast and haven't gotten around to it yet, now's the time. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.